Welcome to You, Me and from Football Whispers, the nostalgic football podcast which each week takes a trip back to the 90s to remember an iconic player from that decade. Today I'm joined by football writer and Manchester United fan Cy Lloyd. Cy, thanks for joining us. How are you doing? I'm very well, thanks. How are you? Last week we discussed another Manchester United great and we've got another Manchester United supporter with us today. So we are talking about the inimitable Paul Skulls. When I say that name, Si, what does that, what kind of emotion does that stir up within you as a United fan? Yeah, I mean, to me, Skulls kind of stood for everything that was that was good about that era under Sir Alex Ferguson. I think, you know, the quality, the intelligence, the way in which you do the simple things so well, but be capable of the spectacular. And then there was the added bonus, really, that he was this unassuming, no-frills local lad. He'd come through the club's academy. And I think, Especially when you grow up supporting a club that's relatively local to you, there's something that bit extra special about seeing someone who was born a few miles away from Old Trafford go on and, and win pretty much all he could have won for the club. You mentioned immediately there the fact that very unassuming, never one to seek any kind of limelight or you know celebrity. Why do you think that was, and and how much kind of did that add to his charm uh, throughout his career and as we got to know him more and more? I don't know, from, especially from what I've seen of him in his TV punditry career since. I'm not entirely sure it was, it was necessarily just shyness or if it was the fact that he came into a team when he was quite a young lad and there were so many strong personalities in that team. You think about, mm. obviously, Keane was already there. You had people like Mark Hughes and, and Paul Ince and a lot of established players. This is before I even mentioned people like Schmeichel and, and Bruce and, and Pallister. And I just think that maybe he didn't have to speak up in that respect. And I think it was partly that. And also, he had the absolute faith that what he could do with the football kind of was enough to speak for him as well. I think it was it was a bit of both of that as well. And maybe, I think, because he came into the team at the same time as Giggs and, and, and Beckham, who were both poster boys in a sense as well. I think maybe he didn't really get seen in the same way as that. So... I do think that, yeah, he was he was slightly shy. Well, he was born in Salford before moving to Langley as a youngster and a very talented sportsman who excelled at cricket. And at the age of 14, he began training with Manchester United before signing on as a trainee in 1991. And it's often kind of wrongly uh, it's suggested that he was part of the same FA Youth Cup winning side that contained the likes of David Beckham, Nicky Buck, Gary Neville and Ryan Giggs in 1992. He was actually part of the side the following year, which reached also reached the final with Phil Neville. Can you set the scene for a side that United in the early 90s, a very different beast to what they ultimately became? There was a sense of renewed optimism from 1990 onwards. I think well, Ferguson had come in in 86 and on the surface, he hadn't really performed any great miracles. Uh, United were, were desperate to win the league again. They hadn't done so in a long time since 1967. And even though they came runners-up in Ferguson's second season, they'd fallen away a little bit. And there's the famous story of how that FA Cup win in 1990 kind of um, gave him the bit of extra time he needed. And, and from there, they, they did seem to kick on. They won the Cup Winners' Cup, uh, Cup a year later. Um, a couple of years after that, they'd won the league again. But just as importantly, I think United's academy was was finally starting to bear fruits then. Um, Fergie, when he came in, um, had... To his shock, really, had, had found that most local talent around Manchester in the northwest and the, the immediate area around Manchester was being hoovered up by City. And mm. he spent a lot of time overhauling the scouting system and to correct that. And 
bring in the local talent and also talent from that bit further away, which may explain why Beckham ended up at United as well. And obviously Scholes was part of that and, and some of the lads that came through in that, that era were a result of Fergie's hard work in the in the first couple of years he was there behind the scenes. What was Scholes' kind of reputation at the time? How much did people know about him and that kind of class of 92 generation as well uh, when they were still kind of in the youth team, as it were? Within the club, it was... It was obviously, it was quite obvious that he in particular was highly regarded. He won the Jimmy Murphy Young Player Award in 1993, which obviously is quite a prestigious award in, in the context of United and young players and the emphasis they put on the academy. Uh, beyond that, I, I think it's quite hard to gauge. I'm sure people that are older than me will probably know more about this, but um, this was still obviously an age where footage of youth games wasn't pasted all over Twitter within 10 minutes of a goal being scored and yeah. Um, you know, it was a little bit different. And I think also you had the, the fact that Giggs had, had come through and was was obviously tearing it up in the first team. And people were a little bit blinded by the fact that he'd, he'd had such a, you know, a scintillating integration into the first team that they weren't really that aware of some of the younger young lads coming through. Certainly not those that, that weren't around the club as well. What was the what were the expectations around that group as they began to break through? We obviously know what they went on to achieve. And I'm sure no one expected that. But, you know, what was the kind of expectation that of the status they might hold at United in the longer run? The feeling around a lot of United fans there was just, they were very surprised that so many young players had come through at once. I mean, you know, usually you'll get the odd youth player who breaks through every year or two. And, and more often than not, at a club like United, they kind of fade away and maybe get sold or moved on. But you don't expect an entire wave of them. And I think because of that, it's difficult to assess exactly what the expectations were. I think logically most people would have expected them to gradually be integrated into the first team, especially when you think that, you know, 93, 94, they did one back-to-back titles and they had a very established team with some very experienced players. I think there was an expectation they would gradually be phased in. Um, and that would have been fine, you know, but it was only in the summer of 1995, really, when United lost the league title to Blackburn and, Kinchelskis and Ince and Hughes went in one summer that it was clear that Ferguson rated them maybe more highly than a lot of people thought he did and had grander plans for them. Would they have got their chance and skulls obviously within that bracket had United not missed out to Blackburn so famously obviously in 95 or was it always going to happen? It was just, you know, might have been accelerated a little bit. It's a good question. I think, to be honest, Ferguson probably had in mind bringing him in as it was then anyway, to be honest. I don't think it would have... Mm mattered too much. I think maybe the way in which they left ended that season empty-handed when did won so much the, the couple of seasons before then might have might have accelerated his way of thinking a little bit. But um, I, I think it was clear that you know the, those players had already made made their debuts in that season the season before, so it was already on the cards that yeah. they were coming through. I just think it was a matter of time. Well, in 1993, Skulls turned professional and he made his debut the following September with a brace in the 2-1 League Cup win over Port Vale and a few days later followed that with a goal on his league debut in a 3-2 loss to Ipswich Town. How times have changed. What sort of impression did he make in those those early games? What was your kind of earliest memory of seeing him uh, play for Manchester United's first team? The first time I saw him, he wasn't he wasn't playing as the midfielder that he became later in his career. He was he was a striker. He'd come through as a striker, and uh, he played there initially when he made his breakthrough into the first team. So um, the Ipswich Town game, I, I vaguely remember his goal. I think he was within the six yard box, and 
he, you know, he wasn't particularly quick over the ground and he was still quite small in stature, but he had that intelligence and that anticipation, which kind of made up for that and might explain why he managed to get that goal at Ipswich. And the goal that he scored on his debut, his first goal was against Port Vale. I think it was the League Cup. That kind of typified it as well. He'd, he'd know where the ball was going to be that fraction of a second before anyone else. And he was, of course, an excellent finisher. And if you look at that first goal against Port Vale, it kind of sums him up. He, um, he senses the mistakes coming from one of the defenders and gets it, toes it past another defender. And then one-on-one with the goalkeeper, I think most young players would just probably just try and get it on target, maybe put the foot through it. And he just has the, the presence of mind just to dink it over him. And it's just a really instinctive finish, but it showed why he was so highly rated as a finisher and maybe a striker early on in his career when he was coming through. 95-96 was quite a big year for Skulls in that Mark Hughes joined Chelsea and Eric Cantona, we obviously know, missed some games through suspension. And he ended up playing alongside Andrew Cole quite a bit, scoring 14 times in all competitions. How did that transition come about moving backwards from playing up front and, and how do you think the kind of the two skill sets intertwined? You know, some might say that you look at Skulls and his build and as I've just mentioned a minute ago there, the, the lack of pace or the physicality of the league at the time and people might naturally think that he just wasn't cut out to be the striker and, and that's why he gradually over time got moved back. I think personally, given his intelligence and his all-round understanding of the game, I think he'd have probably done well enough if he'd have done that. I think one of the initial things that that was the catalyst for him moving back was Cantona himself. Cantona was suspended and when Scholes had come in at the start of that season, uh, 95-96, Cantona was still out. He'd played with Cole and he'd often been, he'd often dropped in behind Cole, which is exactly what Cantona's role was when he came back. So I think, um, I don't think any any player in the world, let alone Scholes, no matter how good he, he proved to be and what a legend he became, no player in the world was going to keep Cantona out of that team from doing that job. So I think naturally that, that kind of position was closed off a little bit for him, um, although he did a decent enough job at the time. There might be nothing in this, but I just wonder, you know, uh, the kind of early to mid-90s, the, the kind of preeminent thinking was that he probably was probably that he needed to be quite big and strong to play central midfield as well. How much do you think that had a bearing on how he was viewed at United in the, the early years before eventually making that transition into midfield? I think it's probably fair. I think, I think I'm right in saying this. There's, there's a story about when he was coming through in the youth system and, and Ferguson had watched him and he said to one of his, one of his coaches, it might have been, might have been Brian Kidd, um, about how he had no chance of making it because of his size. And I think that, that especially around British football at the time and, and until relatively recently, there's been this feeling that, you know, the smaller players, no matter how good they are on the ball, if they're not physically ready for the rigours of like the Premier League football, they didn't really have a chance. And I would have thought maybe that was part of the thinking with Skulls. It just so happens that his exceptional ability and probably, probably just his intelligence in the game meant that he could find a way around that particular problem. 97-98, Roy Keane suffered a knee injury and that kind of ended his season quite early on. Was that the sort of making of Skulls as a, a central midfielder at Old Trafford, getting his getting his kind of lucky break there? Yeah, I would have said so. I mean, Skulls himself has said in the past that he'd much he'd much preferred to have made it as a striker. But <laughs> yeah, as a midfielder, he was obviously obviously one of the best around. And, and saying it wasn't his preferred role, he did he did pretty well with it, didn't he? Um, yeah. But yeah, I think. The thing that helped him is that he maintained that striker's instinct and that he'd still, for the first few years, certainly when he played there, 
be able to join the attack and burst into the area and he'd chip in regularly enough with, with a few goals. But as he aged, it, it obviously was the perfect position for him to to excel in and and obviously for the players ahead of him too that, that benefited from him being just behind and alongside Keane when Keane recovered and, and the two of them kind of played together in the midfield. Mm-hmm. Um, he'd be the one that was that would get forward that little bit more and, and the more he played there, the more he seemed to control and dictate the play. In this day and age, we're obviously quite obsessed, I think, with the kind of tactics of football and the roles and responsibilities of certain players, maybe less so when Skulls was making his breakthrough. What sort of midfielder would you have characterised him as in those uh, in that era? Yeah, I think he was certainly more attack-minded. I think that's probably a legacy of, of the position he played before he dropped back into a more classical midfield. Role. I think of he and Keane, he was the one that was more likely to get forward. And there, there was a little bit of that year into Milan won the, the Champions League and, and pretty much everything else when Wesley Snyder was so good. There was a little bit of Snyder's game that reminded me a bit of that. Of course, he, he did play as a number 10 goals uh, when Bannisteroy came in and Baron was at the club for a little while. He did, he did move into that more advanced position. But I think there were times when naturally when United were on the front foot, you would assume those kind of positions anyway. Well, we'll take a very short break there and then we'll be back to talk about the treble, of course, and the early 2000s. Well, welcome back to You, Me and Today. We're joined by football writer Cy Lloyd, who is helping us remember the brilliance of Paul Skulls. Uh, end of the kind of the century and end of the millennium, obviously unforgettable for United as they won the treble and Paul Scholes played quite a significant part in that, scored in the FA Cup final win over Newcastle United and got a very important goal against Inter Milan in the Champions League quarters. Semi-final against Juventus in Turin, he was obviously quite famously, I think, rested uh, with Nicky Bart favoured, comes off the bench and still manages to get his kind of customary booking that ruled him out of the final. How big a part did he play in that season and that success for United? And conversely, how big a miss was he in uh, in Barcelona against uh, Bayern Munich in the final? You could ask anybody who watched United that season and ask them for the most important player. And obviously it was Roy Keane. He was, yeah. he was the most dominant force in that team um, for a few years after it. And there was that feeling that with Keane, they were unbeatable and, and certainly a feeling that when he wasn't there, United was that bit more vulnerable. Um, but Scholes, Scholes was definitely up there. And that season in particular, um, United, United were fortunate that they had uh, Dwight York and Andy Cole who'd scored the bulk of the goals and they were well backed up by Solskjaer and Sheringham when, when they weren't firing. And that, that kind of eased the pressure on Scholes really, but he still managed to, I think he, I think he got about 12 or 13 goals that particular season. And, as you've just touched on there, a lot of them were very important ones. You talk about the group stages of that Champions League, Ronnie scored against everyone, Bayern Munich away, he scored against Barcelona, he scored against, uh, I think he might have scored in both games against Romby. Um, and in the knockouts, famously, he scored the goal against Inter when, at the time in that game, United had won the first leg 2-0 and they were 1-0 down in the San Siro and they were they were looking a bit shaky. Inter had a goal disallowed and United looked like it was, you know, it, it was very possible it would have gone to extra time and, and you know, it was even possible Inter might have nicked a couple of goals and won, won the actual tie in before the 90 minutes were up. So that goal was a massive goal, I think, for United that year and 
giving them that kind of belief that they could go on to do what they did in Turin as well. I think it was, it was quite a huge goal in that respect as well. Um, but away from Europe as well, I mean, again, as you, as you mentioned, he scored the goal against Newcastle in the cup final. He scored a big goal against Liverpool in the league too, quite early on in the season. So mm. um, plenty of plenty of goals, plenty of important goals. And that isn't even talking about the kind of goals that he had, he had an assist for or he played some important role in the build-up for. It's inevitable we have to discuss his tackling at some point. I think, you know, for all his qualities, that was the one big kind of uh, blot on his copybook, as it were. Was his tackling something, Si, that uh, kind of precluded him from become, being viewed as a better player or did he not really need it, such were his other qualities? I think it was pretty exaggerated, to be honest, that he was he was this terrible tackler. Um, I, I don't think that at all. I saw... A lot of him play. I think the, the main one that everyone talks about is the one that you've already already mentioned against Deschamps, against Juventus. And I honestly think that nowadays, if you look at that particular incident, that tackle, he, he does leave the ground and you'd say, yeah, fair enough. But in the context of that moment in time and the way, especially in England, the way that tackling was looked at, I think he's quite unlucky in that he gets the ball first. Deschamps jumps in just as much as he does, but he's wildly enough to know that because he's, second to the ball, he has to throw himself over and scream. And I think that Scholes is quite unfortunate. But that, that's the one that everyone remembers. I think more broadly speaking, it's it's a bit exaggerated. I think playing in midfield for United back then when they largely went with four in midfield and attacking wingers and because they were so exposed when they lost the ball in the final third, I think the two guys in the middle of the park had to be able to tackle. And because the team was so attack-minded, that, that was essential and I've seen plenty of evidence down the years that Scholes could tackle perfectly well enough I think that it was more a case of the ones that got in the cards were a result of him trying to even things up from something that happened earlier in the game that he had a flash of the red mist and he'd, he'd clatter into somebody I, I don't think it was that he couldn't tackle I just think he actually quite enjoyed the physical side of it One of his other big traits then of the kind of standouts was his you know fantastic goals that he scored uh, probably the most most well remembered is the the volley from David Beckham's corner against Bradford City during the 1990-2000 season. Talk to us about his kind of knack for those screamers and and how uh, and what was your favourite, I suppose. There's something that the club put out a few years ago, and it was just showing his showing his top goals. And I'm not kidding; there was about 20 or 30 of them from outside the area. It's ridiculous when you look at how many there were. I think in terms of his best goal, you'd probably have to say the one at Bradford. I mean, in terms of his technique, the, the flight at the corner from Beckham and the way it came across his body, there's that brilliant angle of it from behind the goal where you actually see him hit the ball and it gets just enough fade on it to kind of just curve inside the, inside the post. And you probably would have to say that. But I think for me personally, um, one that probably wasn't that important, but it really stands out for me just in terms of what he was all about was a goal he scored against Panathinaikos in the Champions League group game, um, probably probably around the time, the Bradford uh, Bradford goal, maybe just a little bit after that. Um, United were 2-1 up, and I think the game was was pretty much over. Um, they played okay. They were just kind of going through the motions towards the end of the game. And you may remember, they, they'd racked up some ridiculously high number of consecutive passes, and the ball eventually got to Scholes on the edge of the area. And given the circumstances that United were only leading by a goal, I think a lot of people might have expected him to just waste a few seconds and take the easy pass back to the full back or whatever it was. But instead, he just uh, he barely lifted his head and 
he played this perfect sand wedge of a chip just over the goalkeeper who wasn't even off his line, but he got the angle yeah. absolutely spot on and made it 3-1. And it kind of typified everything that was good about United at that time, the kind of swagger they had, even when they weren't winning a game comfortably. They, they, kept, they kept the ball so well and with such ease. And then the impudence of the actual finish and particularly given that the result wasn't exactly safe at that moment in time. And I don't think there's many players in that particular team that would have even attempted that because had it gone wrong, I think the manager would have had something to say say about it given the game wasn't won. The following season, 2000-2001, United signed one Sebastian Veron and we obviously view that now as a, a bad signing and it forced Skulls into a slight change of position playing off Ruud van Nistelrooy as a kind of second striker. Was that an error from Sir Alex Ferguson moving him or, or what, what did you make of it, Si? I don't think it was necessarily an error in that I don't think Skull suffered from it too much. I think maybe he'd become more used to a more classical midfield role by then. Um, but I think one of Skull's greatest uh, qualities was that he was so he was so adaptable. Um, we saw that from the fact that he dropped back initially when he, when he first came into the team within the first couple of years. So I don't think adapting to a new, it's not even a new, but a more advanced role really mm. hindered him too much. I think it was more the need to try and accommodate Veron, which didn't quite work out as well as it as it, as it was hoped it would do. This kind of led to the one controversy of his otherwise remarkable career. Uh, November of 2001, he refused to travel to Arsenal in a League Cup tie, a much kind of changed team and was fined heavily for it. And, some reports I read around this in researching for the pod suggested that he even considered leaving the club. Was that ever a viable kind of option for him? Was he that put out about kind of losing his place to Veron, or what was your recollection of that period of time? It is strange because obviously I read up on this before I came on. I don't really remember too much about this at the time. I think it was probably one of those things that we just dealt with internally and didn't really make, make the papers too much at the time. Um, I don't know. I don't think it was ever likely he was going to leave. I think he was obviously a local lad and I don't think he ever, ever had aspirations of, of moving on or playing anywhere else. I think that as well, when you look at whatever he said on it, he's he's always been quite clear that it was a bit of a mistake on his part. Um, I just think it came about because he, like a lot of players, like all players, wanted to be playing and playing in the biggest games and if memory serves me right, I think it was Liverpool the game before that in the league and he'd not, he'd not played in that. And I think this was a bit of a reaction to that from him. He'd been, since he came through as a young lad, a regular part of the team and suddenly being dropped for such a big game, I think was something that he wasn't expected. But I, as I say, he, he realised pretty quickly it was a big mistake and he apologised. And I think it, usually when you see when you see something like that happen under Ferguson, I think it only really ends one way. The fact yeah, that the fact that he wasn't moved on, I think, says quite a lot about how highly he was regarded by Ferguson and that he didn't and that Ferguson made that exception says says quite a lot. From an international point of view, it wasn't that long after two thousand and four and the European Championships in Portugal that Skulls retired from England duty at the time he was only twenty nine, kind of felt that he was being misused by Sven Goran Eriksson out on the left uh, in quite a few games. Is there a case to be made that we never valued Skulls as much as we might have in this country? I'm sure not a case that, or something that could be levelled at United fans, but uh, but those away from Old Trafford perhaps didn't quite get his his brilliance. Yeah, possibly. I think again, he was he was kind of a victim of his own versatility in this sense. I think particularly 
this, it always seems to me it was particularly under Ericsson that you know yeah. there was this need to shoehorn him, Gerard and Lampard into the same team. But a bit of a reluctance to kind of alter the formation or, or to, toy, to, to toy with the formation or the system that was used to try and get the best out of the three of them. Um, more often than not, he'd stick rigidly to four in midfield. And as you've just said there, Scholes was the one that suffered because he got pushed out to the left. And I just don't think it really worked. I think perhaps the time when it could have worked for him would be when Capello came in. Because I think Capello, mm-hmm. although England never really seemed to play that great at him under major tournaments, I think he was a bit more forward thinking in terms of being a bit more modern with his approach to the game and the fact that he would he would play slightly different systems. For example, he played 4-2-3-1. And, you know, you could envisage a situation there where um, if, if he'd gone with that, you could have seen maybe Skulls taking one of the deeper roles, especially towards the end of his career when he when he used to take up those positions for United and maybe one of Gerard or Lampard alongside him or even both of them in, in one of the, the three in front of him. Um, but that, it just seemed, was never really factored in when, when Ericsson was there and, and probably McLaren as well, although he retired before McLaren. It was never really an option. It was always that safe midfield four. Fabio Capella and Steve McLaren both tried to bring him back over the next six years. Is he someone that we could have done with? Was there anyone kind of like him in and around the England squad at that point? I mean, I'm inclined to say no, but what, what did you reckon? I don't think Skulls being there beyond his retirement would have really helped too much for England. I think, as I just alluded to there, that the problem was more the managers that were in charge and how narrow-minded they were in terms of the, the formations and systems they adopted for the major tournaments. I think England midfields that Skulls played in were typically that flat floor where you'd have the wider players, which would more often than not, be Beckham on the right and him on the left and they'd just be looking to play the ball into space for the pace of Owen. And occasionally they might they might adjust it, they might have a holding player just to add a bit more stability defensively. But nowadays, I think midfield, the way football's evolved, they're made up of two banks. It's a bit more flexible. And I think if that had been the case, as we saw at times with Capello, um, Skulls would have played that deeper role and that would have opened up more possibilities for, for Skulls and might have had some kind of impact on how successful England were. Well, we'll take a very short break and then we'll be back to talk about the latter years of Paul Scholes' time at Manchester United. Welcome back to You, Me and Today I'm joined by football writer Cy Lloyd and we're talking about Paul Scholes, former Manchester United great. Um, he missed the second half of the 2005-06 season with blurred vision and there were even some probably quite ridiculous claims that he was suffering from partial blindness at the time. It was uh, later revealed it was a blocked vein behind his right eye. How much did United miss goals at this point? And it wasn't a, certainly wasn't a particularly glorious era for United as they rebuilt. And, and how serious a threat to his career was was this problem? No, as you say, United, United had the, the league title win in 2003. And after that, it was kind of a bit of a period of transition. Um, that same season, actually, 2005-06, Keane had obviously left in course, yeah. not ideal circumstances. So <laughs> all of a sudden, United, as this team in, in, in transition, were, were without the two players that had formed the core of the best ever midfield and they'd gone. I mean, all right, Keane was, was probably over the hill by then, some might say. Maybe not Keane. But um, <laughs> yeah, it was very different. Beckham had gone, Nicky Butt had gone, Michael Carrick hadn't arrived yet. And in midfield, it was probably just about as weak as United have been in some time. I think Darren Fletcher was coming through then, but was still still quite young and inexperienced. And 
particularly when you look at Chelsea at the time, who had Lampard and I think Estian was was part of their team then. They were they were so good as a team then under Mourinho, and obviously there was a real steady distance between United and, and Chelsea at that time. It seemed like a title challenge was a long, long way away. Um, at the time, I think there was a real risk that Scholes wouldn't ever fully recover. Um, yeah. I remember reading something, I think it might have been a Danny Taylor um, interview with Scholes not long after it, and it talked about how United had used special state-of-the-art optical equipment at the training ground just to get him get back to something resembling like you know full form and and full capacity with his eye um, and I think he still suffered with with blurred vision for the season after it so there's a, there's a very real risk that he wouldn't ever properly recover from the sort of things and the sort of plans and, and preparations United put in place for him when he came back to training Over those vision issues Skulls enjoyed one of his best seasons in 06-07 as United wrestled the Premier League back from Chelsea for the first time uh, since 2002-2003 as you say and kind of enjoyed a bit of renaissance he was in the PFA Team of the Year and nominated for the PFA Player of the Year award as well was this his best season for you Si or, or was there another one where he kind of stood out uh, more for you no I think there was definitely something enjoyable about this especially because um, United at that point despite what I've just said a minute ago there about how they seemed a long way off Chelsea suddenly started blossoming in that they had these young players coming through and particularly particularly Rooney and, and Ronaldo who suddenly started to score the goals. And it was kind of similar to not not necessarily the, the style they played, but the circumstances of ninety nine where you had where you had skulls just behind, you know, Cole and York, then you had him behind these other two young players that are coming through and scoring plenty of goals. And it was quite exciting to watch. And also the fact that there was the surprise that he played so regularly. I think he made over thirty appearances that year and Given what had happened the season before, the trouble with his vision, I don't think anybody really expected him to play so regularly. But he was fantastic to watch that year, and um, he he didn't quite make double figures in terms of goals, but his performances were consistently good throughout. He was playing alongside Michael Carrick, which I think brought a bit of stability to midfield that maybe hadn't been there the season before with with obviously Keane's departure. Um, and yeah, even though he didn't score as many goals, he was still chipping in with the important ones. He scored again against Liverpool. And there was a game just towards the end of the season when he was kind of touch and go whether United actually won the league or, or Chelsea won it for a third time. And he scored an equaliser in a game against Blackburn at home and Blackburn had been they'd taken a lead and there he's stubborn to break yeah. down. And I don't know if you remember it, but Scholes was the one who kind of scored picked the lock in the end. Yeah, he just kind of like slalom past a couple of players. And yeah, yeah. You might have even think that one, if, if memory serves me right. But it was a massive goal in the context of what happened after it. And I think they ended up winning the game 4-1, but it felt like a real significant moment in that title race. That kind of United team, for you as a United fan, perhaps not the most iconic, but after the kind of, the, you know, the tough start to the Glazer years and, you know, selling players and whatnot to develop, I guess, the squad. How how much did you enjoy watching that team with Ronaldo and Rooney and Skulls obviously rolling back the years? I don't know if this is just a result of me being at an age where I watch the team more, I could just remember more, but that, that particular team where Tevez joined those two, um, yeah. I would say the football at times was, was better. I, that might be controversial, I don't know. Um, Obviously, I think any United fan would get more satisfaction out of seeing the 99 team winning just because it was made up of local lads and lads that had come through the academy uh, more so than the, the team in 2008 was. But I think definitely the, 
the football that the 2007-8 team played um, with Scholes behind that front three and Carrick as well, I think was was at times more exhilarating. And that win kickstarted a real kind of period of success for United, the kind of the end of the Fergie years, won the title in 07, 08, 09, and then again in 11 and 13. Obviously, 07, 08, memorable, probably even more so for the Champions League win, and Skulls played quite a significant part in that, despite missing a lot of the season through injury, scored um, a, a stunning goal, I think it's fair to say, against Barcelona on the way to the final. How much, how nice was nice as a crap word but how good was it for him to be kind of you know get that redemption after missing the final in 99 obviously like everybody makes a big thing about he and Keane missing the 99 final but you know when, when you look at interviews he's given on that that particular season and the fact he got the medal for the Champions League uh, final that year but it was just putting a draw at home it didn't mean anything to him because he'd not partaken in the game um, it says a lot about how much it must have meant to him to get to that second final and actually win it. Uh, I think as well, so much of that season in 2008, uh, 2007-08 was, was about Ronaldo. Ronaldo was really emerging as this, this, this absolute megastar and he, he was absolutely fantastic. He'd been unplayable for much of the season. And he got to the Barcelona game and he, he didn't really perform as well as he had done. He missed a penalty in the first game in the new Camp which would have put United in a strong position to advance. Uh, that was nil-nil. And then Scholes, there was something romantic almost about the fact that Scholes, this local lad, had done what you know this emerging megastar had not been able to do and scored this absolutely crucial goal to get them back to the final and obviously go on and, and win it as well. And for all those kind of players you mentioned, the Ronaldos, the uh, Tevezes and what have you, how what did it mean to United fans to still have... Um, you know, a proper Mancunian at the heart of the team. But every club loves that connection. But having had the class of '92 so long, he must have Gary Neville would have still been around. But it must have been kind of the last two at that stage. There was gigs, obviously, as well. Gigs played in that game too. But yeah, it, it means a lot. I think any football club, any football fans that are, are local to to the, the team they support, it always matters that bit more when you see, as I said at the start, one of your own, if you like, doing. Winning, winning the very top trophies in the sport for the team that you play, that, that you support and you've grown up watching. So to have that connection, I think, meant a lot. And I think that's, that goes for any team, to be quite honest. Any team that you see win a Champions League or, or whatever, if they've got local lads in the team, it always matters a little bit more than it would do if it was you know, some expensive signing that you've got from South America or whatever. In 2010, he became the highest scoring central midfielder in Champions League history by hitting 25 goals in doing so. Uh, in, in scoring against Milan, he also became the only player to score against both Milan clubs at San Siro. A nice little uh, quirk of history there. At his peak, how good was Skulls uh, against his kind of European contemporaries, the players he would have been facing up against in Europe, do you think, Si? He always he always punched his weight, definitely. Um, regardless of what Curtis Woodhouse might, might tweet, I think, um, <laughs> you know, you, you look at him when he was at his peak, uh, as I've already mentioned, you talk about 98, 99. He scored goals against Bayern, against Barcelona, against Inter Milan. Um, he, if memory serves me right, he had a decent enough game against Juventus, I think. I'm pretty sure he did. Um, so he always he always kind of held his own, regardless of who the opponent were. I, I remember it, the game against uh, AC Milan as well, the season before the 2008 Champions League win in the semi-final, where I think he did that 
that lovely scoop pass for Rooney to score. Um, so I, I think he always performed on the top stage and that, that's kind of one of the things. He was always very consistent in, in that respect. Um, you know, he never had the steering pace, but everything else you'd want from a midfielder, the technique, the pinpoint accuracy of his passing, his vision, creativity, the timing, the touch, everything. He had it all. And the, the other thing that I think really sets him apart and the reason he's so widely admired is the fact that he did it for so long. The longevity of his career is probably one of the things that really adds to his reputation. Well, we'll take a quick break there and then we're back to talk about the final couple of years of Paul Scholes' Manchester United career. Welcome back to the final part of You, Me and Stay. I'm joined by football writer Cy Lloyd and we've been discussing Paul Scholes. Well, after all that success, he announced his retirement uh, but ultimately, it didn't last very long. And he, having joined Manchester United's coaching staff at the end of the uh, 2010-11 season, he came out of retirement in 2012 and made his his uh, comeback in a Manchester derby win over City in the FA Cup. Just what was that like? Um, it was kept very secretive, as I remember. How, how on earth did they achieve that? And what was the kind of reaction to Skulls coming out of retirement so suddenly? I have absolutely no idea how they managed to keep it quiet, to be honest. When you, when you look back at it, it's, what year was this? Was this 2012? I think it was, 2012, wasn't it? 2012, yeah. Yeah. So, you know, it's in an era where, obviously, um, it's the Twitter era where you get news within seconds of it, of it breaking. And I remember being in the... I didn't go to that game. I remember being in the supermarket and somebody Skulls is, is playing today. And I, I just thought, what? You know? <laughs> Uh, it was absolutely miraculous they kept it quiet the, the press only got wind of it when Skulls actually got off the bus at the Etihad which is you know as I say absolutely incredible that they managed to keep it a secret for that long um, United even made a point of keeping it the information secret from the, from his teammates until the day of the game so none of the United players even know knew until he actually turned up ready for the game so it was it was pretty incredible, but I mean, at the time, United were facing a little bit of an injury crisis in that they did not really bought a midfielder for a couple of years, if memory serves me right. Um, Tom Cleverley, who started the season really well, despite some of the stick he got later on in his United career, he'd, he'd made a really promising start to the season and done his ankle at Bolton and hasn't played since. Darren Fletcher had been ruled out for a long time with a bowel condition, and obviously, um, there was a young lad coming through called Paul Pogba who Ferguson didn't think was ready at the time. So <laughs> because of that, um, Skulls ended up coming into the manager's office one day saying that, you know, I've retired six months ago, but I quite I quite fancy playing again. And it, it says a lot about how highly Skulls was thought of. I mean, how many, how many former United players could walk into the manager's office six months after retiring and and saying that, yeah, my legs are gone, but I quite fancy a new contract and, and getting one. It doesn't happen. It doesn't happen at all. And that's that's what happened. And I think he came as a sub that day and did okay. United ended up winning the game. And uh, mm. yeah, quite incredible when you think about it. Over the course of the rest of that season, how much of an impact did he make? And if it's truthfully not much, you can say so. But I'm just interested to know from a United perspective. Uh, I remember him scoring a goal. I think it might have been against Bolton. Uh, being honest, I don't remember him having a massive impact. Um, but, you know, he, he came on, he did a job. He was steady, he was consistent. He was another body, which I think, given the circumstances of those injured players, I think was, was necessary. And he did enough to stay on for the next season and uh, get himself another Premier League winner's medal too, which 
was a nice, nice way for him to bow out for a second time. Eventually signed, as you say, for another year and remained a part of the, the side, uh, was part of the title win in 2012-13, which is obviously Sir Alex Ferguson's final year and the most recent Premier League win in United history, surpassed 700 United appearances and doing so, joining a very kind of uh, exclusive club. How uh, how much of a loss was he, do you think, and Ferguson at the same time and David Gill at the same time at the end of that season, seeing so much kind of United um, kind of experience and, and United DNA leave the club in, in one hit? I think maybe Skull's the player then, given that he was definitely the end by this stage, wasn't wasn't that much of a, of a loss, really. I think, obviously, the... <laughs> Very obviously, the bigger impact was was Ferguson going, but but not just Ferguson and, and Gale. The fact that when Moyes came in, I think a lot of the the coaching staff that had worked a lot with the players then, um, and that the players had grown used to under Ferguson, went with him as well. I think that was maybe more, one of Moyes' first big mistakes is that he maybe didn't make more of an effort to keep some of the coaches that were already there in the same roles. Um, I think all of a sudden things felt very differently about the place, especially with Scholes, even though he maybe wasn't at the peak of his powers in terms of playing. But um, Skulls' presence not being there as well maybe had some kind of an impact with that. Has there been a player like Skulls uh, since he retired, do you think, either at United or in, in the Premier League? To say there's a player exactly like Skulls, I'd say no. Um, certainly not now in the Premier League. I think the closest we've come would probably be someone like Luka Modric. I think he's very yeah. similar in the way that he controlled the game and... and he has that ability to, to seem to look like he's thinking two or three passes ahead of where, where the ball actually is. Um, he's arguably quicker than Scholes was on the ball, I think. Um, he can go past the player every now and then. But I think the way he dictates play, um, a lot of his attributes remind me of Scholes, to be honest, the way he moves with the ball. Uh, and I think it's no coincidence that Ferguson was so keen to get him before he eventually left Spurs for Real Madrid, I think. Had he done that, I, I wouldn't be surprised as well if, if Ferguson had stayed on an extra couple of years if he'd had that extra midfielder come in. All the greats have spoken very effusively about Skulls, Zidane, Xavi, Pirlo, Henri, Guardiola and so on. Why is he so universally adored within football, do you think? Uh, I guess it's a couple of things. One, it's that obviously his technique and the things I've already discussed, like his awareness, his vision, the creativity and his timing, that, that movement that he had and the anticipation they're all, all qualities that any, anyone could admire from someone who's not played the game at a high level. And to Zinedine Zidane, they can, they can all identify that. But again, uh, I think I mentioned this before, it's that longevity as well. The fact that he was, he was, doing, he was doing all this from the, making things look ridiculously simple and uncomplicated, but he was doing it for so long, it was such a long duration of time. I think that kind of, singles him out a little bit for, for anyone really whether whether you are someone who just plays in the park every now and then or, or you're playing World Cup finals I think everyone could admire that and for someone who was never the quickest never really engaged in kind of flicks and tricks in the same way that you know Ronaldo did uh, the shyness as well is there an element that perhaps you know he would have been more uni- received more universal acclaim had he been a bit just a bit flashier because he just he wasn't was it? It's probably the last word you'd use to describe him. Absolutely, I think you could definitely look at it that way. I prefer to think the opposite. Really, I think as I've already hinted at, one of the things that most United fans loved about him was that he'd turn up, he'd play the game as well as anyone out there, not be too fussed with any of the other things that came with being a professional footballer. And I think 
in that era where Beckham was almost regarded as a celebrity first and a footballer second, Beckham, who was a, uh, sorry, Scholes, who was a lad he'd grown up with him, was only ever interested in being the latter. He, yeah. he may have been ridiculously good at it, but that made him extremely relatable, especially to, to local fans. And I can't remember the exact quote that Ferguson came out with, but I think he referred to as an uncomplicated Lancashire man. And it's probably fair. I think that was part of the allure of him, really, that, that he was this, this simple um, local lad who just wanted to turn up and play football and just so happened to do it as well as anyone else. And yeah, I think was it Roy Keane who said he was an un- un- unaffected human being with no celebrity bullshit, no self-promotion. Yeah, that's right. Just an amazingly yeah. gifted player. Penultimate question for you then, Si. What's your personal favourite memory of Paul Scholes? You've got to say, knowing the backstory, that the sight of him nose bloodied with the European Cup in 2008. You know, it would have been an absolute travesty had he not won it, given how much he did for the club and, and how unfortunate he was personally in 1999 not to get there in the final um, with all that happened. And then he scored the goal that, that got them there that was that was so important for them actually reaching the final. It kind of made it that that bit more special. And just that sight of him at the end of the game, um, I forget who he classed with in the Chelsea team, but he had his nose bust and blood pouring down his face, absolutely soaked through in the rain. Um, that was kind of something that I think all United fans are remembering by. Finally, nine years later, actually getting his hands on the prize. Where does he sit in the kind of pantheon of Manchester United greats for you? I think this always depends on the area you've watched United in. I'm really lucky that I grew up in a time where they had quite a few memorable names. But I mean, for me, Cantona would always be the number one, purely because mm-hmm. it felt when he came, he was the catalyst for all that followed. Um, rightly or wrongly, that's just how it felt. But I think in terms of longevity and all that he gave to the club, I'd have to put him in, in Ryan Giggs, equal second. Uh, make sure you give Si a follow if you aren't already. He's on Twitter, Simon Lloyd, but without the vowel. Simon Lloyd 5, even, without the vowels. And make sure that while you're at it, you subscribe to Umian via Acast, Spotify, Apple Podcasts, or pretty much anywhere else. Do also tell your friends, review us, and so on. It all helps hugely. And finally, if there's anyone that you'd like to hear us do an in-depth discussion on from the 90s, do get in touch with Football Whispers at FB underscore Whispers on Twitter. (laughs) 